Well, what great singing. It seemed to go by really, really fast for some reason. I don't know. Something's off this morning. I don't know if you feel that way or not, but the music portion flied by, but it was the same amount of time, and I guess I wanted more this morning, but that would mean me giving up some time, as we can't do that. If you got your Bible, grab it, and let's turn to Luke chapter 10, and uh, man, it's good to see you this morning. As I said earlier, welcome to Red Lane. If you're a guest, we're super glad that you're choosing to worship with us. I just feel the need to inform you again. Uh, I think we do this periodically, not enough. But um, on our website, you can go and obviously look at all archived sermons, full services. You just go to that tab that says resources down to message or watch services. And then also you can find my manuscripts. Uh, probably majority of you, unfortunately, will never visit that, but I think you should. We offer that as a resource. You could follow along as I preach in the mornings, and you can figure out how much I deviate from that manuscript and why it takes so long. Uh, but it's just good for you to have it there. And so if you will utilize that, I think you'll be blessed for it. But this morning, I just wanted to point that out again. It's been a while since I've done that, and many of you are uh, fairly new, and so you may not know that that's a resource that's available. Also, you can uh, find the, the outline and some, some other things in the YouVersion Bible app, and so you can follow along, take notes in there. In the service, you can use that. It's part of, uh, you can just search for Red Lane. You should be able to find that. Um, while you're here as well. But Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin this chapter this morning. As we get started, I want you to think about uh, a beautiful summer drive through the countryside. And that, do you, anybody enjoy doing that? I don't know if we take Sunday afternoon drives anymore. Uh, our life is so busy, we don't do those things. But I really enjoy uh, driving through the countryside of really any state, but, but Virginia. Can, can we say this morning that there's probably not a more beautiful countryside than that that we have right here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it's just absolutely beautiful landscape to, to drive through some of the rural areas and you've got the, the, the row crops, they're kind of set out with the rolling hills of Virginia and you've got an old barn and a silo. And I mean, that's just majestic as you drive through uh, this beautiful state that we have the privilege of living in. And so when you are on the road and you're experiencing the landscape like that, does it ever occur to you to ask yourself the question of like, how did those corn stalks get there? How did those soybeans grow up and, and have that beautiful symmetry? You know, it's a, it's a rectangular field and there's lines of, there's, there's rows of soybeans out there and, and how did that get there? We don't ask ourselves that question because we know the answer, right? A farmer is behind that. Uh, Row crops don't just happen on their own. They don't just happen with all the symmetry and with the nice lines and, and in a certain space. No, we know that the farmer is behind it all. We know that when we see that in July and those, those soybeans are two and a half to three feet tall and they're nice and green and lush and we've got corn that's tossing and it's producing ears of corn. We know that a few months prior to that, there was a farmer or a team of farmers who was out there disking the field, fertilizing the soil, preparing it. He was planting the seed and then he was praying for rain. We know that because we understand what it, what, what it takes to farm. We understand that the symmetry of the rose is that handiwork of the farmer, and we also recognize that the growth of the crop is the work of God. 
And so what you have is this beautiful coupling, this beautiful pairing of farmer and his work and his activity and his energy and his, and his time that he spent out there in the field coupled with, partnered with the sovereignty and the power of God. The goodness of God bringing the increase. And so the harvest that will take place later is this culmination of a joint exercise between God and the farmer. You see, the farmer planted that seed, and God is the one who gave the increase. Such should be the case for Christians and churches when it comes to the gospel. One Sunday morning, a pastor began his sermon in this way. He said this. I would like to make three points today. First, there are billions of people around the world who are headed to a devil's hell. Second, most of us sitting here today do not give a dang about it. He paused for a lengthy period of time and he said, my third point is that you're more concerned that I, your pastor, said the word dang in church than you are about the billions of people headed to a devil's hell. I just want to let you know I Christianized his actual statement. <laughs> According to R.C. Foster, Jesus said, Go, but the church through selfishness and indifference has refused to obey. He says, We try to substitute right, send, or give for go. We try to salve our conscience by turning over the task of going to someone else and giving for their support. Of course, he says, we must sin where we cannot go, but because we can't go across the world does not excuse us for refusing to go across the street. You see, as we look at the gospel and we understand the message of the gospel and what we see in the word of God, going to people who are spiritually dead, going to people who are condemned in sin is what all believers have been commissioned to do. Elton Trueblood magnifies this obligation that we all bear. He said this, and I quote, evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but it is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs, even in the most modest way, to the company of Jesus. It is a commission that all of us bear. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life today, you have a commission from the King to represent him to others. So this morning as you drove onto this campus and you walked the halls of this church building, did you wonder to yourself, how did all of these people come to know Jesus Christ? Anybody think of that question today? Well, what's the story in their life? What's the story of how Jesus brought them to himself? There's probably a plethora. There's a different story for every single one of us. None of us are the same. But here's what I do know about every single person that knows Jesus Christ sitting in this room watching us online this morning. Someone took the seed of the gospel and planted it into your life. And it probably wasn't just one person, but multiple people poured into your life. Mom, dad, relatives, friends, small group leader colleagues at work, neighbors in the neighborhood. 
People you listen to online, watched on television, all of these gospel seeds, all of this activity has been dumped into your life. Rows have been furrowed in your life. Gospel seeds have been planted. Fertilizer applied. Water applied. All of that work has gone into bringing you to a place where the seed took root and germinated. Life began. So you got the activity of people planting in the gospel into your life, and it's coupled with the power of God that brings the increase, that gives you faith, that enables you to believe on him for salvation. So how did we all come to know Jesus, those of us who know him today? Someone told us about Jesus, and Jesus gave us the faith to believe on him. The activity of others, coupled with the power of God, brought new life to you. Amen? That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about how God wants to use us to bring life to others, newness of life, eternal life to those. We're talking about transformation that's taking place because of the power and the work of the gospel in us and through us. And so this morning, simple question to get your thoughts moving. Are you partnered with the Lord and working in this way because you've answered his call on your life simply as a Christian? Not because you're a small group leader, not because you're an elder, you hold some sort of office in this church, not because you're the senior pastor of this congregation, but are you and have you answered the call simply because you are a follower of Jesus Christ? The commission is for all of us. You see, Ian Murray makes a great statement. He says, there's not the slightest hint in the New Testament that evangelism is the special prerogative or responsibility of office bearers. We are to be burdened for men's souls, not because any office requires it of us, but because we are Christians, because we know Jesus Christ. We bear his name. And so this morning, as we are moving into a new chapter, as we're walking into the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, what we find Jesus doing is appointing and sending out more people. He's going to appoint and send out the 72 gospel preachers. And as, I might, as you might remember, at the beginning of chapter 9, back in January when we were there, Jesus commissioned and sent out 12. He sent out his 12 close disciples. These men, except for the man known as Judas Iscariot, would be the ones who established the church. They were the apostles. They held the office of apostle. And so God was uniquely sending them out to do a unique task and they led they led the church for all of those years in its infancy. Now he's going to send out a bunch of common people to do much of the same thing. They're going to be sent out by the Lord with the same power, with the same authority, and with the same message as the 12 and God is going to do through them much the same things. People are going to hear the gospel, believe the gospel. They're going to be delivered from demonic oppression. They're going to be healed. They're going to be drawn to Jesus. Also, some will reject the gospel message and reject them just as the 12 were rejected. This is a message. This is a commission for all of us to know, to hold, and to share. And so look with me. Let's begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 24. And before you freak out, We'll be here the same amount of time as usual. (laughs) Verse 1, Luke says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, 
into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Remember, Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem, and he's beginning to make his way that way. For the next nine chapters, nine and a half chapters, we're going to see this unfold, Jesus moving to or toward his passion there in Jerusalem, his suffering that's going to take place. These folks are going ahead and preparing the way. Verse 2, it says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your, own, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, setting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by, by, by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. There's three scenes that we're going to look over the next three Sundays in this 10th chapter. Three scenes that illustrate three ministries of every Christian. This morning in our text that we're looking at, these first 24 verses, we see that believers are Christ's ambassadors. They are the representatives of the king. They're sent to represent him in this world to preach the gospel, right? The second scene that we'll look at next Sunday is we, the idea that we as believers 
are to be neighbors looking for opportunities to show mercy in the name of Christ. We'll look at the story of the Good Samaritan. Then, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday, we will see that believers are worshipers who long to listen to God's word and commune with Christ. And we'll, we'll be there on Easter Sunday, and it's Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, right? So we're going to be in a different text than normal. We're going to carry through in our series in Luke, but we're going to see this story of Mary and Martha and how Mary just sat at the feet of Jesus and worshiped him and listened and sat under the word of God. That's where we need to live our lives as worshipers. So we see these three scenes in this chapter of Luke 10. Whether we're in the harvest field like this morning or on the highway like next Sunday or in the home like on Easter, our highest privilege and our greatest joy is to do the will of God. So in our text this morning, we see here that Jesus commissioned and he sends out these 72 other believers, these 72 other preachers ahead of him in the towns and villages that he's going to visit. Now, you read that this morning. You heard from me reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. You may have a different translation. And rather than saying 72, it might have said 70. Anybody read your Bible that says 70? Okay, we got a few of you guys, right? The difference is the, the manuscripts that the translation is using. So whether it's 70 or 72 really doesn't matter. That, that's not the most important thing. Uh, they're pretty close to number even, right? They're only two off. So different manuscripts that are using there for those translations. So it's not the biggest deal. While some scholars will say that the idea of it being 70, or I would even say 72, plays on the 70 nations that are mentioned in Genesis 10. And so it could be that in this commissioning of these 70 something folks sent out to preach the gospel, it's a picture, a throwback to Genesis 10. So what we see is a, a first step toward world evangelization. The idea that we as the common people are to take the gospel everywhere, here and there, neighbors and nations. And we know as we get into post Pentecost, that is exactly what happens. The gospel is preached and people from all over the world hear the gospel in Jerusalem and are saved and baptized. The church is birthed and we've been in this mission ever since that day. So this morning I want to speak to the subject of working the harvest. Because Jesus here is sending these men or women out in pairs to go and to prepare in every town and place where he's about to go. And so in harvest terms, these people were to go, they were to cultivate the spiritual soil in 35 or 36 different locations between Galilee and Jerusalem in preparation for a harvest, a spiritual harvest that was coming. They are working this harvest. And so I want us to look at what it means to work the harvest. And there's four things for us to know. Here's number one. When we're working the harvest, know the condition of the field and pray. Know the condition of the field and pray. You see, the farmer understands how important it is to know the condition of the field that he or she is working. When you think about a field, a field has various uh, things or issues in it. Sometimes you'll look at a field and it's full of rocks. You look at a field and it's got a stump. And so you've got to take that into consideration as you're preparing to plant, as you're preparing to 
Work the harvest. You've got to take that into consideration, the obstacles that are in the field. Sometimes you take a soil test sample and you look at that pH level and the various things that are in the soil, not in the soil, and you might have to make some corrections to get the right nutrients in the soil or the certain nutrients out of the soil so that whatever you're trying to grow has an opportunity to grow. So you got to know the conditions of your field. Other times you may notice that in the field there's an area that holds water, retains water. And so you've got to work around that. You've got to plan for that. You, you don't want to spread seed in an area that's not going to produce a crop because of the water that's standing there or will stand there. And so there's a lot of things that go into farming and working the harvest. These different conditions will determine how the farmer approaches the planting and the harvest process. In a similar way, Christians who desire to faithfully partner with the Lord in gospel work will do well to remember how important it is to know the condition of the field in front of them and pray. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, Jesus' words here lead us to consider that the first great work of Christian evangelism is done on our knees. The, the first great work that we do as Christians who want to live out the gospel is not get on a plane and go overseas. It's not get up and go over the street next door or to the house next door. It's not to get up and go to someone that's in our workplace or in the class that we're in or, or speak to someone in the hall. The first great work of Christian evangelism is prayer. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so pray. Pray. Seek his face. Seek his power. Seek his will in that. Jesus' use of a harvest word picture here reveals to us the difficulty of this work. You see, when we think about this necessity of prayer and the reason we should pray, prayer is not something that precedes gospel work. It is the work. Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we could preach and we could stand and, and herald the gospel all day long, but if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't empower our preaching, empower our witness, the words we say will fall on deaf ears. But if God is in the midst of the picture, if God is coupled with the farmer, great things can happen. We must pray. We must work. And farming is hard work. Farming is not for the faint of heart. You see, what's amazing about this verse here as we read it is, is that Jesus does not tell them to pray for an easier path. He tells them to pray, but he doesn't tell them to pray for an easier task, pray for an easier job, pray for an easier option. No, he just says pray that God would send more laborers into his harvest, into this field that you've been called to till and to sow and to, and to reap the harvest. Makes the point here that where they are going is exactly where they need to be because there is a harvest that's awaiting them. And so Jesus here instructs them to pray to the Lord of the harvest for more laborers to join them in this great work. So the problem is not that there is nothing to harvest. No, he says it's plentiful, right? The harvest is plentiful. So what is the problem? Where's the breakdown? What's the issue? The problem is that there's not enough laborers to effectively work the fields and bring in the full harvest. If you've ever been out 
West, let's say Kansas, Nebraska, even Illinois, some of the Midwest states where they have thousands upon thousands of acres that they're farming. You know, one farm may farm 30,000 or maybe more than that acres. Can you imagine? Even in our modern technology, you've got one combine and one tractor, one planter, one plow, one whatever of the tools that you need, and you're trying to do that for 30,000 acres. Just one person, one piece of equipment. How much work are you going to get done? Well, you're going to work all day, every day, but you ain't going to farm 30,000 acres. Can you farm 30,000 acres? Will that 30,000 acres grow crops? Absolutely. That part of the country is some of the best cropland in the world. It will grow anything. But if you're just one person with one piece of equipment, you've got 30,000 acres, you're not going to harvest what 30,000 acres can produce. Why? Because you need more laborers. You need more tractors. You need more planters. You need more combines. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says the harvest is plentiful. The fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord to send more laborers. There's not enough faithful Christians doing the work of telling people about Jesus and calling for them to respond to it. That's what he's saying here. So these words of Jesus call us to know the condition of our fields and to pray to seek the Lord to send more laborers. We Put it into our context today right where we live. What are the conditions of our Powhatan and Metro Richmond fields? The North American Mission Board, I've shared this with you a number of years ago. The North American Mission Board that was always studying the trends of evangelism tells us that in North America, 75% of the people are lost and unchurched. So in Powhatan, we have... A little over 30,000, maybe 31,000 people here now living in our county. So if you take that number and you put it into the the equation, that tells us that 22,500 plus people in our county are lost and unchurched. You go a little bit bigger circle and you go to the greater Richmond area, the population is 1.4 million plus. You put those numbers in there, and I think it comes to around 955,000 people in the greater Richmond area are lost and unchurched. Here's another way we could say it. They're headed to a devil's hell to be eternally separated from the God who created them and longs to redeem them. That's the condition of the fields that we live in. And so Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. You see, today in our area, in our county, we don't have enough churches to to house the people that God would have come to our churches. We don't have enough Christians sharing the gospel in our county to make a dent in this culture, in this field that we live in. So the problem is not that the harvest is not plentiful. The problem is that the laborers are few. And so we need to pray. We dare not pray for an easier job. No, we need to pray earnestly for more workers to enter the job, to take on the responsibility and to get to work in the field. We need more gospel-preaching churches and more evangelistic Christians because many hands make light work. You say, Pastor, we got churches all around this county. Yeah, we have churches all around this county, but they are not. And I would put us in that category, making a dent 
in the population. You say, Pastor, we're doing really, really good here. Look at how our church has grown. I've been a pastor here for seven and a half years, and we were running 140, 150 back then. Now we're 220, 225 average, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so in seven years, we've grown 80, 90 people on average. What is that to 30,000 people? Right? I'm not deflating what God is doing here in our church. I'm saying, man, let's go do more. Let's be more evangelistic. Let's be more gospel in tune and gospel engaged in our community. We need to have more of that. You say, how are we going to do that? Well, I don't think we look for a program. I don't think we look for a certain niche that we try to, 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 to try to leverage necessarily. I think we just live the gospel out where we live, we work, and we play. And so that's what we're trying to instill into our membership here is it's not a gimmick. It's just this is how we live our life. And we want to, we're so in love with Jesus that we just want to express him to everybody. We want to ex- ex- get them to experience him just like we experience him every single day. So I'm engaging people that I know where I live and where I work and where I, I interact with people. We're playing or recreating or it's the ball teams that my kids are involved in. Whatever those circles are, I want to engage people there. Because I understand the condition of the field that I'm working, and and there needs to be more laborers because this harvest is plentiful. So I want to join in. I want to pray that God would help others to join into this work as well. Think about this. I don't know about your where your mind goes, but I look and I say, man, Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful. So why would we not want to jump into that? What if Jesus said the the harvest is bleak? I mean, it's like Genesis 38, if you remember the story of Joseph, and he goes down to Egypt, and there's this famine that's coming. I mean, what if he said, that's the sort of harvest you're going to get? I mean, stalks of, ear, stalks of corn are going to grow up, but the ears that they produce will have no fruit on them whatsoever. What if that's what he said? None of us would want to engage in the gospel work. We should, because if he told us to do it, that's enough. But he doesn't say here that... The harvest is lean. He says the harvest is plentiful. So why are we not jumping in with both feet? Why are we not getting on our faces and praying and seeking his face? I believe one of the reasons is the fear that as we pray, Lord, send more laborers, we become the laborer that gets called. And I think that's the point. That we would so engage in the prayer that we would feel compelled to go. But that would mean we'd have to get off the sidelines as a spectator and get to work as a laborer. This work, as we all know, is not easy. And that brings us to a second thing we need to learn from this work in the harvest picture we see here, and that is know the difficulties in the field and remain steadfast. Verses 3 through 15, we're not going to read them. We read them earlier, but it, these verses lay out the difficulties the laborers would face. You see, when you think about the farmer's work, it's demanding, right? Farming is demanding, but it also can be very dangerous. The 72 were being sent out into enemy territory. Jesus says you're being sent out as lambs among wolves. And yet the mission was urgent. There was no time to be weighed down with supplies. There's no time to chit-chat on the road. Those are interesting statements he makes there in verses 3 and 4. He says, take no knapsack, take no sandals. If you pass someone on the road, don't talk to them. Well, that doesn't sound very gospel-centered. I mean, I may share the gospel with that guy on the road. 
He's speaking here of urgency. He's speaking here of, of trusting his provision. He's telling us here that the mission is so urgent that we don't need to, to, to build up a, a bunch of supplies. We just need to go and trust the Lord. So these men were commissioned to go as an ambassador of peace. And thankfully, Jesus indicated that there would be some people who received them, who welcomed them, yet others would reject. Unfortunately for the people who rejected the gospel, the judgment of God would remain over their lives. Like we learned back in chapter 9 in the sending of the 12, what we see in these verses are principles for gospel ministry, not a prescription for gospel ministry. So it was unique to them and to their sending, just as it was unique to the 12 who were sent. It was this particular mission, so it's a principle, not a prescription. In other words, he's not telling us here, as I said in January, that we should never pack a bag before we get on a plane to go overseas on a mission field. Now, it might be easier to do that because sometimes bags don't make it to the location you're going. So it might just be easier to take a bag full of money with you and buy your supplies there, but that's not what he's saying. We know that because as we get to Luke chapter 22, right as Jesus is being portrayed and all these different things that are happening, he reverses the order and gives us a prescription for how we're to do gospel ministry. Luke 22, 35 and 36, we see this reversal. So coming back to what we're reading here in Luke chapter 10 and this word picture, when we're farming and we're working the harvest, we should expect difficulties. We should expect them. So while the harvest is plentiful, there will be many people who reject the gospel and us as the messengers of it. While working the fields, trusting God to provide will always be a constant test. Is that not true? I mean, you just take it in our own annual budget as a church. We, we budget for a projected what we believe the Lord is give, will give us, and we base that upon what he's given us in the past. And where does that money come from? You and I. So when we talk about what we want to do in a gospel standpoint of how much money we want to send overseas in missions, how much money we want to retain here to do local work and all of the things in between, we are trusting God to provide. And so as we're walking and working in this harvest, that is a constant test for us. It will seem at times as like there's no progress being made. It will seem at times like the provisions that the Lord is giving are too light. It will seem at times that persecution is mounting, and so we are, may have the tendency to, to, to cower back or to pull back. And on top of all of these difficulties, let's just add one more. As you labor in the gospel, as you invest yourself into others, watching them reject Jesus Christ, it ought to tug at your heart because you understand the ramifications of the decision that they're making. And so there's that added pressure to this gospel work. So we need to understand the difficulties that are there in the field and what do we do with that knowledge of those difficulties? We stay steadfast. We stick to this stuff. We continue to push forward. We continue to believe God. We continue to trust God. We continue to move on in the gospel and invest ourselves in others, even when we know some will reject because we're just being obedient and we're being Christians who love other people. So we may be hesitant to pray for more laborers because God may send us to join the work Rather than shine away, I, I, my prayer is, is that we would join that work, that we would be steadfast in that work, regardless of how difficult 
it might be. There's a third thing that I want us to, to understand, to know about working the harvest. Know your role in the field and share. What's the farmer's main enterprise in farming? Driving a cool tractor? You know, all of us, it's kids want to drive tractors, right? I mean, I borrow, I'm, I'm borrowing a tractor right now, and I, I love getting out. It's a little guy, but, I mean, I get out there, and I feel like I'm something, right? Like, man, I'm, I'm big stuff. I'm moving dirt. You know, uh, men never grow out of boyhood. I played with Tonka uh, tractors and front-end loaders and all that stuff as a kid, and lately I've been playing Tonka again. because of, So we, we love that. Is that what farmers' main enterprise is, getting on a tractor and doing neat things with dirt? No, it's not the main enterprise. Sorry. I need to be mutually inclusive of all people. Thank you for that DEI moment. Marilyn, where was I? (laughs) The farmer's main enterprise is sowing the seed. Everything this farmer does is about that seed that goes in the ground. Right? Everything the farmer does is about that seed. There's a lot of things that work in conjunction with the sowing of the seed, but it's about the seed. You see, if the seed is never planted, then nothing else matters. If a farmer is just out there disking up the ground, but he never comes behind it and plants a seed, it's all for naught. If the farmer disks the ground, fertilizes the ground, drives a water truck over the ground and gets it nice and wet so that something could grow, but the farmer never plants the seed, it's foolishness. His enterprise is the seed. His enterprise is working the ground so that there's a crop on the back end of that. So as a faithful gospel proclaimer for us, verbalizing the message of salvation to those who desperately need to hear it is the role we play in this spiritual harvest. Sometimes we sh- as we share the gospel, the work we are doing is plowing the field in a person's heart. So you're sharing the gospel, you're presenting the message of salvation, but it's for them, you plowing the ground, right? You're, you're, you're moving dirt, and it's an activity. You've got to start there. Someone else comes along and plows a little bit more. Someone else comes along, and as they're sharing the gospel message, they're fertilizing the ground. They're further prepping that soil. Another one comes along and and makes a furrow. Another one comes along, and as they're sharing the gospel, that seed that you all have been planting takes root. Someone adds water to it. You've got all these different people playing all these different roles, but all are sharing the gospel. And then there's someone who comes along after that seed has taken root, and it's growing because it's being fed with water, and now it's beginning to produce fruit, and someone comes along and harvests it. A person gives their life to Jesus Christ. Who has participated in the work of the gospel? Who's participated in the harvest? Everyone. The first person that shared, the last person that shared and got to reap the harvest, and everyone in between. We all participate in the work of the harvest. But what is our main enterprise? Sharing the gospel. Putting the seed there. All of us take part in that. So that's our role in the field. We must share the gospel. So Christians, as we seek to live out our commission today, man, we need to know our role in the harvest field and simply share the message of salvation. It is literally the only thing we are responsible for doing. 
You say, Pastor, we should should meet people's felt needs and meet their physical needs, and and we should care about what's going on with them emotionally and, and all of the different aspects of life. Absolutely we should. But if we don't share the gospel, but we do all of that, it's like a farmer taking his plow and his planter and his fertilizer and all of his other equipment and doing all of that work to the field, but never dropping a seed into it. It is all for naught. We need to do both and as we share the gospel and play our role in the harvest. Brings us to a fourth thing we need to know about working the harvest. Here it is. Know what to celebrate in the field and rejoice greatly. Verse 16 is what I was just talking about there. I, I, I just feel like I'm passed over something. Let me back up just a second. Jesus says that when they hear you, they hear me. When they reject you, they reject me. When they reject me, they reject the Father. Sometimes we feel the burden of that, but we just need to understand we're just messengers sharing a message. So know your role, share the gospel, plant a seed, and allow the Lord to bring the increase. Brings us to number four. Know what to celebrate in the field and rejoice greatly. Verses 17 through 24, we, we read really of a threefold joy. I, I like how Warren Wearsby in his commentary describes it. He, he talks about it being a joy of service in verses 17 through 19, uh, the joy of salvation in verse 20, and then he speaks of the joy of sovereignty in verses 21 through 24. And so as you think about that, you might imagine that when the 72 returned, and it's what we read here, they were absolutely overjoyed by the victories they'd experienced, much like those of the 12 who came back and just said, Lord Jesus, everything you empowered us to do, man, we got to do that. Demons were cast out. People were healed. People believed on you. It was a glorious, glorious thing. So these men come back and they're overjoyed because Jesus had given them power and authority to heal, to cast out demons, to preach the word, and they had successfully done all three of those things, according to verse 17. As the 72 faithfully worked those fields, verse 18 and 19 tells us that Satan's power, his influence, diminished Jesus tells them that he watched his authority be snuffed out through this gospel work of these men. The disciples were right for rejoicing in their gospel service. But Jesus does something interesting here. He moderates their joy. You might, when you read that, you might think, Jesus, they're, they're really excited. Why did you kind of step into that space? Let them be excited for that. But he says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The joy of salvation. Should we rejoice that God is working through our our efforts and blessing our efforts and using us in a great way? Absolutely. We should rejoice in that, but keep it in moderation. Understand and never lose sight of your salvation. Never forget what Jesus has done for you. Never forget what you were like before you met Jesus. You say, well, I came to Jesus at five years old, and man, I wasn't an axe murderer or an adulterer or a larcenist at five, but... I met Jesus, and he changed my life, and incrementally I've grown, but I I look back, I don't see this grand transformation. Rejoice in that, right? Rejoice that God has been gracious and good to you. You didn't have to experience what some of the rest of us have have had to experience. But no matter what situation we're in, 
Whether you were 35 and strung out on drugs and your life was absolutely at rock bottom and Jesus changed you and you've been moving up since then, no matter where you find yourself at on that spectrum, rejoice in the salvation that you have. Why do you think that's important? Because the more passionate you are about what Jesus has done in you, I believe the more committed you'll be to share that message with someone else. When you, become to, when you begin to come, become indifferent about that, and you forget all that the Lord has done for you, you forget how good he's been to you, where's the compulsion to share? Where's the urgency to share? You're just a cultural Christian. You're just a common, everyday, nominal Christian. Yeah, we love Jesus. Yeah, we're going through the motions. Yeah, life is good, and he's blessing, and we're, we're grateful for that. But you've lost touch with his grace upon your life. That's why we need to, 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 to marinate and soak ourselves in the word of God and, and understand the theology of salvation, that there is no one good. No, not one, Romans 3 tells us. All of us, regardless of what our life has looked like, deserve a devil's hell. But God in his grace, God in his mercy, has offered us forgiveness and freedom for sin. May we never get over that. May we always rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Third part of this threefold joy is this sovereign act in gospel work, sovereignty of God in gospel work. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit according to verse 21 and the work of illumination that the Spirit of God does in the hearts and the minds of people. As we read verse 22, it might seem a little bit alarming to you that the whole idea that God reveals himself to some and not to others is hard to swallow. We don't have time to get into that theology right now of election and all of those things, but let's just look at it from the perspective of those who have believed on Jesus have had the light and the ability and the faith given to them to do so. And let's just rejoice in that. Well, let's rejoice in the sovereign activity of God who brings men, women, boys, and girls to himself. So as we look at these verses here, the burden is on verse 21, that Jesus rejoice. That God had made the gospel known to those who believed. And this picture is made of eyes being opened and sight being granted. So the spiritual sight comes through humble and simple faith. The faith of a child. You just simply believe what the word of God said. It's not the wise, it's not the strong who see and believe on Jesus. It's those who look to Jesus with a simple childlike faith. It's, it's amazing to me as we read through the Gospels and, and, and the story of Jesus' life that those who are closest to the Word of God missed the Word of God completely. Big W, big G. They missed Jesus. The, those who knew the law and the prophets and, and the and the Psalms and everything that was in the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and they're looking to the Messiah that to come, didn't notice the Messiah as he stood in front of them. Why? It's because in their pride, they thought they knew and had it figured out. But those who are just of the ragtag bunch of people who didn't have all the education that the others did, those are the ones who believed on Jesus. You ever go through the list of who Jesus' disciples were? Fisherman, tax collector, Common people, P 
people who just simply believed on him. God's sovereign work there gave them faith to do that. So in all of this, I want you to see this morning that God is sovereign in our salvation. There's a lot to say about that. But I'm grateful to God that he is sovereign in my salvation and sovereign in your salvation. Number one, because it's all a work of him means that I can't do anything to mess it up. Sometimes, since we're talking about sharing the gospel, just looked at the clock for the first time. Sometimes when we're sharing the gospel with people, I think that one of the fears that cripples us is we don't want to mess this up because we understand how ma- magnanimous is that a word? Just huge of a deal this is. I think it's a word. Look it up. I, I tell our staff all the time, when you earn a doctorate, you can make up words. When you earn a doctorate, you can make up your own words. I, I, it's got to be good for something, right? Other than just to hang on the wall. It's got to be good for something, so I'm using it for that. But we, we understand the magnitude of what it means when we're sharing the gospel with someone else, and so we don't want to mess it up. But when you understand that God is sovereign in your voice as you speak, you can't mess it up. He's talking about a child. We, we saw a few passages earlier in chapter 9 where... He, he brings the boy to him. It's almost like he's using this little boy as a picture of he's the mouthpiece that's going to preach the gospel. Kids aren't as articulate as we adults because we've been educated a little bit more than they have. We're supposed to be able to speak different than them. And yet Jesus says the voice of babes is good enough to preach the gospel. You just got to be willing to plop the seed down. So Hold and delight in the sovereign activity of God as you plant the seed in other people's lives. Know what to celebrate and greatly rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus has changed your life. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus is changing other people's lives. Rejoice in the fact that as you work in this harvest, his sovereign activity is there and he's using you for good and for his glory here and there. And let's engage in that work. And so this summer, as you're driving through the countryside, whether it's here in Powhatan or Amelia, Goochland, or really any rural area across this great state, and you look at those fields, and you see the symmetry, and you see the beauty of row crops, remember those plants did not plant themselves. A farmer or farmers were behind all of it. They disked, they planted, they fertilized, they prayed for rain. It was his handiwork coupled with God's power or her handiwork coupled with God's power. And the growth of the crop is the work of God. So the harvest that's going to come is that beautiful culmination of a joint exercise between those two. And as you're living your life gospel-centered and intentional and strategic where you live, you work, and you play, and you're putting action there and energy there and effort there and time there in relationships, what are you doing? You're sowing seed. You're cultivating and prepping soil and watering and fertilizing and planting more seed, and you're working in conjunction with others. You're doing the work, and at the same time, it's, t- t- it's tethered to the work of God, the sovereign power of God, and when that comes together in God's sovereign timing, new life takes place. And around this room, that's the testimony. Amen? You didn't plant yourself in the kingdom of heaven. 
God used someone or someones in conjunction with his power to bring new life to your life. And now he wants to use you and others to bring new life through his power to someone who's lost and unchurched and headed to a devil's hell. So this morning, we want to know the condition of the field and pray. We want to know the difficulties in the field and remain steadfast. We want to know our role in the field and continue to share the gospel. And we want to know what to celebrate and greatly rejoice in that. Christian, this morning, how do you need to apply these four things to your life? What's the spirit of God kind of laying upon your heart today of what that ought to look like? I don't know what it is for each of you, but I know he's speaking to you. Are your ears open and attentive to hear this morning? And maybe this morning you're sitting in this room, you're listening to us online, and and the message is not you need to go and, and be a part of the harvest. The message for you is you are the harvest. And today the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, coupled with my preaching and others' investment over the years is drawing you because the harvest is plentiful. And today you need to respond in faith and repentance. You'll have an opportunity to do that in just a moment. And so let's stand, let's pray, and let's respond. The harvest is plentiful. Father, that's what your word says. But the laborers are few. So, Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would send out more laborers. As we pray that, we acknowledge that we are the answer to that prayer. In many ways, we are the answer. We're definitely the answer to that prayer right here in our context, right here in our fields. So, Lord, help us to answer that call to live the gospel, to verbalize the gospel, to model the gospel in those circles that you've placed us in, circles of influence. Lord, I pray that you would raise us up as a church more and more. I look forward to the day that as a local church right here, we plant another church in Powhatan. Lord, it's been since 1942 that we planted a church out of this church in Powhatan. The church is known as May Memorial today. And so, God, I pray that today might be the catalyst for that. You begin to birth that in our hearts. How can we strategically and intentionally work to propagate the gospel right here in our backyard as a church? May that be true congregationally. May we live it out individually as I prayed. Father, may we do more on the mission field, giving more dollars, sending more people on short-term trips, and as vocational missionaries. Lord, you, would you birth within us a passion for that? Lord, I pray for men, women, boys, girls, that you've been calling to yourself. And Lord, this morning they're not being called to work the harvest. They are being called as a part of the harvest. And you're prompting their spirit. And you're revealing their sin and their condemnation and their need for forgiveness. And Lord, you've been working them over for some time. I 
I vividly remember the day that you called my name. I pray today would be that day for someone else. Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty in this moment and in our lives. We just rest in that. We trust in that. But, Father, we want to answer to it as well. Help us to answer the call to go. And for those who need Jesus this morning, may they answer the call to come, to come to Christ and to have their sins forgiven and new life be granted. Have your way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.